We're in the Gospel of John chapter 12. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone. But first, I want you guys to see a video. It's pretty mind-blowing. Roll tape. Today, Iran is home to the fastest-growing church in the world. It's almost entirely Muslim background. They have no denominational leanings or affiliation. They have no governmental recognition or legitimacy. They have no bank accounts. They have no 501c3s. They have no centralized leadership. They have no Bible schools or seminaries. They own no properties or church buildings, and they possess no assets. On top of that, while being Muslim background, they are, by and large, aggressively and passionately pro-Israel. That is, they love the Jewish people. And on top of that, it's predominantly led by women. What if I told you that Islam is dead? What if I told you that the mosques are empty inside of Iran? Iran that is known as the most radical nation in the world, exporting terrorism, exporting radical Islam. But when you go inside of the country, the mosques are empty. What if I told you that no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? But this is exactly what's happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. The, the ruling class are the religious class, and many of them are religious because that's where the high-paying jobs are. But the majority of the people are just normal, ordinary people. They love God, but they realize, they recognize that Islam is the problem. What if I told you that an evangelist for Jesus came inside of Iran? What if I told you that the best evangelist for Jesus was Imam Khomeini, the Ayatollahs? You might be wondering, what do you mean? How is that possible? Because the Ayatollahs and Imam Khomeini brought the true face of Islam. And when people in Iran saw the true face of Islam, they found out that it was a lie, that it was evil, and that was deception. Because after 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia, according to them, they've had the worst devastation known in the history, in the 5,000 year history of Iran. مسیح با این فرمان تو متا گفت که برین امتا رو شاگرد بسازید و این باعث افتخار منه که دارم توی حکم مسیران Today Iran is home to the fastest growing church in the world It's almost entirely Muslim background They have no denominational leanings or affiliation They have no governmental recognition or legitimacy they have no bank accounts, they have no 501c3s, they have no centralized leadership, they have no Bible schools or seminaries, they own no properties or church buildings, and they possess no assets. Kind of sounded like the beginning of the tape, didn't it? Is that mind-blowing, y'all? Iran. Like, if you were to think of the least likely place for the gospel to take hold, I would think of Iran, Iraq. Syria, Afghanistan, and also in a large communist country, maybe the largest communist country, which is? And the ironic thing, y'all, this is mind-blowing. The ironic thing is, while in our country, 
It seems like people are pretty much too busy to be about the gospel and the kingdom, generally too busy. What we see is in Iran and in China and many other places that we would think the gospel will never work here. It will never spread here. There's too much persecution. In fact, that's the place where the church is on fire. That's the place where the church is growing. And so I'm really heartened, one, that um, we, we use that as an illustration not to write off anybody. Like, not to say, like, God could never, don't ever tell God what he can never do. And the other thing is to step back and ask the question, like, God, what, what's the problem? What's the problem in our country? Uh, we have so many things. Have you ever been in an airplane and fly above Roanoke? I love it because I have no sense of direction. In fact, when I come to a stop sign, if I feel like I need to go right, I should go left because every time I go the wrong way. Does anybody have that malady? Yes. The problem is, if I do that, it's still the wrong way. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just invariably get the wrong way. Um, now, uh, the bottom line is, friends, we are, we are seeing in America, if you go up in an airplane above Roanoke, uh, guess how many churches in the greater Roanoke Valley, not just Roanoke City, the greater Roanoke Valley, guess how many churches there are? A whole lot. A whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott McLucas asked this question, our, our uh, church planner in, from Badatat, who now has a big church. Um, he asked that this summer. We were doing the praise and worship with Steve's uh, gospel choir. It was awesome. He goes, how many churches are there in Roanoke? And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, I got it, I got it. You know, it's kind of like be that guy in school who knows the answer. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Because I had actually gone through the phone book and one time looked at churches back when we had phone books. Remember phone books, the things that you actually take in your house and use? And I literally counted and I know not every church, this is like 10 years ago, not every church had, um, has a phone. They don't. But in our city, there was like almost 500 churches in the greater Roanoke Valley. 500. And there's, there's a flying above the city. It's like, oh, that's a nice building. Well, how much does that cost? Oh, that's a nice building. That's a nice building. That's a nice building. And I started to think, man, there's like billion, a billion dollars invested in buildings. And I love buildings. I'm so glad you have a seat this morning. It's awesome. We like buildings, nothing wrong with buildings. But I'm starting to ask the question, like, the gospel spreading in Iran, where they have no money, no structure, whatever, and yet in a, in a country where even, in, I mean, we're from Big Lick. Do you know Roanoke was called Big Lick before it was Roanoke? Where are you from, boy? Big Lick. Big Lick has over 500 churches, a billion dollars worth of property. And we have to ask the question, how much bang for the buck is the Lord getting? How much bang for the buck is the Lord getting? It's, it seems that one of the reasons I wanted to show you this is there seems to be a correlation. I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's a fairly direct correlation. The more comfortable and the more wealth and the more comfortable and the more pleasure-seeking a, a people group are, the more comfort they have, the less likely they are to share the hope that lies within them. You know what hurts about that? I've been a pastor for 31 years. And I'm not saying I'm Roanoke. I mean, I want to be that, have visions of grandeur. There's some kind of mental health thing for that where you think you're somebody. But what I want to say is, as a man who's been a shepherd here in this city, when I say God's not getting much bang for his buck, 
that really, uh, that hits close to home because I'm a shepherd in Roanoke. I'm not the only shepherd, but I am a shepherd. And I have to wonder, like, Lord, what's wrong with us that we won't even ask somebody who's our good friend to come to Alpha or come to church or maybe to come over our house and let's have a meal and let's talk. We're so polite. But in Iran, it's just like when you first met the Lord. I mean, a lot of you guys were raised in a Christian home and from infancy you knew the Lord and you were taught God's ways, you were taught the scriptures, and you probably can't uh, remember a time that you didn't know the Lord. But for a lot of us, we, we were church, but we weren't Christians. And so there was a time where we actually stopped being just church people, but actually became followers of Jesus. And you know what, guys? I'm recalling those days in early 1980. No one had to guilt trip me to go share the hope that, that God had given me. It was, there was no, um, there was no pressure. God wasn't doing this behind my back, like bending my arm up. I wanted to. I wanted to share with other people about the good news of Jesus because it was here and it was real and it was bubbling out. I just wanted to share. And so we see not only in Iran, but also in this scripture, if you go to John 12, uh, we're going to see this story of a bunch of people who want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And in fact, the, the followers of Jesus didn't come to them. They actually had to come to the followers of Jesus. So lest we beat ourselves up too bad, please understand, even the 12 oftentimes waited for people to come to them and ask instead of going out and sharing the gospel. All right, so we're in John 12, and we're in verse 20. It says this, Now among those who, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Were some Greeks. Now, before we get into that, I want you to flip back in your Bible or your Bible app and tell me two things that have just happened. I want you to look in John eleven thirty eight. Jesus has just done a big-time miracle. He's done something that's actually got people's attention. There's a guy, there's a guy, there's a guy, there's a guy. It's a guy named Lazarus. <clears throat> he died. He was really dead. He wasn't sort of dead. He wasn't giving me a shot of... Uh, epinephrine in the heart dead. He was dead. How long was he dead? Four days. Four days. And he was dead long enough that one of the women said to the Lord, oh, don't, don't bother with him because by now there will be a, an odor. He was really dead. And so Jesus has just raised this man from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Out he comes. Man, people took note. Like even the most hardened heart, when you see somebody come out of the grave, you're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, there's something on here beyond my rational capabilities. God, this man is from God. I've never seen anybody raise somebody from the dead. And so G uh, Jesus had just raised Lazarus. And then as people are beginning to ask, who is this man? Like, we've never seen anybody teach with his authority. We've never seen people do the kind of miracles he does. Then he, he has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And no, he didn't come with an army. No, he didn't come with weapons. No, he didn't ride on a horse. He came humbly on a donkey, as prophesied by the prophet uh, Zechariah. And so we see Jesus doing this great miracle, healing Lazarus. Then we see the crowds coming in, and he's coming up to Jerusalem, and people are putting their jackets down and palm branches and saying, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Hosanna in the highest. And so with that, now we see in verse 20, it says, now... Now some Greeks, that means people that weren't believers, probably. It doesn't say that per se, 
But usually when scripture refers to Greeks, that's the same word for pagan, lost person, not a Jewish person, not of the family of God. Uh, We know that there were some Jews that actually, uh, as the Jews dispersed, they shared their faith. And so some Gentiles or pagans or Greeks came to faith. In fact, Philip was one of them. But here, let's go back to the text itself. It says, there were, some, uh, there were among those who went up to worship at the feast, uh, and, and these people were Greeks. First of all, what feast were they going to? There were three, three feasts every Jewish man was supposed to attend every year. He was supposed to go up to Jerusalem, even if you didn't live there. Long way to go. First feast was the greatest feast of Israel, Passover. Second one was seven seven days times seven, feast of weeks, i.e. 50 days later, right? What what was the feast after Passover? Pentecost, Pente, like 50, right? Seven, Seven weeks, Pentecost. And then after that, the third feast every male had to go to was feast of booze, right? Feast of booze. So you had Passover, you had Pentecost, feast of booze. And so what we see is right after Jesus healed Lazarus, right after Jesus had his triumphal entry, we see a bunch of folks, both Jews and non-Jews, with people that were committed to the Lord Yahweh, and some that were not. Maybe they were seekers. They were interested in worship. Because, you know, the Bible says that God, Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. No matter how hard they are, how Muslim they are, how whatever they are, the Bible says that God has put in each person eternity. There's something inside of us where we want to know about the Lord. There, there's something we want to know about heaven. That's why my dad said, Hoss, tell me about heaven as he was dying. Tell me about heaven. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And so we see these Greeks coming up to worship at the feast. And so these Greeks came to Philip. Philip. Now who's Philip? I had to look it up because they're, you know... They're Phillips. They're a couple of Phillips. One of the Phillips was a guy who was a deacon, and he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you know that story? Yeah. But this was not that Philip. This was another Philip. This was the apostle Philip. He was one of the 12. And what's interesting about Philip, you may not have picked this up, but his name was not a Hebrew name. It was, in fact, a Greek name. And the scripture is careful to note here. It says, so these came to Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, right? So the same, so what Galilee is called Galilee of the Jews, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so what we know by his name, which is a Greek name, Philip, and also by his location is that he was not born a Jew, right? He was, he was of Greek uh, origin or culture, but he had become a follower of Jesus. And so these Greeks, I guess they figured he's a safe guy. You know, I'll go to the guy that's kind of like me that might understand where I'm coming from. So they come up to Philip and they say this. Uh, if you're looking in verse 21b, they asked, they asked Philip, they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. I remember not long ago, actually, it was long ago, I lied. 15. Yeah, it is when you get older. Sir, how long have you had that refrigerator? I don't know, man, maybe six years. Sir, the records here say that thing is 21 years old. Right? Anybody have that? Lose time? Yeah. 
anyway, uh, the point would be, oh, about 15 years ago, I was invited to go down to First Baptist, and that's kind of a big deal. Before we decided as a church that this was going to be our final sanctuary, we're not building a bigger one, never, 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 unless God screams at us, we're not doing it. We decided we would be church planters because we understand um, practically uh, and maybe even spiritually that folks that are on a mission, like when you're planting churches, everybody has to, everybody has to take their oar or their row and have, have, you have to work for the Lord, right? You can't just sit there. And so we made that decision. But back then... Before we made that decision, I had this illusions of grandeur. That's a mental illness, I know. Illusions of grandeur that we would have some massive sanctuary. Yeah, I think there might have been some pride in that. So I get invited to go to First Baptist. I'm like, all right, Lord, now I've arrived. I mean, First Baptist, that place is big, man. I mean, see, up there would be like a couple thousand people. Down here would be a couple thousand people. It was like stepping into something really big time thing. Billy Graham's pulpit. I'm in Dr. Fuller's pulpit. And I got up there, and on, on the wood desk of this pulpit, the first thing I noticed was a small clock, and preachers never watch those. But beside the uh, small clock that was embedded in the pulpit was a plaque. And it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. See, I was walking in there subtly prideful, thinking, hey, this is great. I've been invited to the big time. I'm in the major leagues now. And what's there in front of me is, we don't want to see you. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Every pulpit in America, everybody that steps into every pulpit in America should realize that people come here. You came here this morning not to see that video as awesome as it was. It was pretty cool. You did not come here, even though it's awesome that we have a banjo player in our praise team. Who does that? I mean, yoo people from Big Lick, we do that. Right? But that's not why you came here. You came here because God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women, and as my friend Keith Allen would say, and boys and girls. That's why you've come. There's something in every person, even those we write off that says, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The problem is often they see our funny stories. They see our politics. They see book somebody read, they, hear, they see legalisms, do this, God will love you. Don't do that, God will love you. But what people really hunger for is to see Jesus. We see it in Iran. We see, we're seeing it now in China. But these Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And so what happens? Look at verse 22. So after they said that, it says, Philip went and told Andrew. The thing I love about this, it's such a simple thing. When they came to Philip, remember, Philip had not gone to them. So God will even work through our imperfections, y'all, right? If we won't go to them, God sometimes even have them come to you, you know, and ask, like, what must I do to be saved? Or, hey, could you tell me about what's going on in your life? Could you share, like, the, the reason for the hope that you have? Like, there's something going on with you or you and your family that I didn't see five years ago. What's going on with you? And so we see these people. It says, Philip went and told Andrew. He's just being obedient, you know, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. They were part of the salvation process. I was thinking about driving in Roanoke, and I was thinking about coming down 220. Anybody ever do that? That dead zone where there's no cell coverage? You know that place, right? And so when you come down there, it's easy to be singing a bluegrass song or whatever you like, and your old left foot to get heavy, right? 
And all of a sudden, 45 is a nice suggestion. You're blown down there at 59 or 60. And oftentimes, there's a little man or woman in a car hiding on the left. You know that experience? So let's say if you're barreling down and maybe, by God's grace, you don't get a ticket. But you see a whole bunch of other suckers coming up the hill speeding. Or especially coming down the hill, right? If you're going the other way. But when you see those people and you know there's a police, a popo, a policeman or policewoman, what do you do? Flash your lights. And usually you wait till you're around the corner so the popo won't see your lights flashing. But you flash the lights. Why do you do that? That's an honest question. Why do you do that? To warn them. To warn them against an $80 ticket. And yet, we have enough love to do that for a perfect stranger. We don't even know them. But we wouldn't warn somebody to flee the wrath that is to come. See, We've stopped talking about that. God is, my God is a God of love. He sure is. I've heard preachers say it. My God, my God, like we define God. My God is a God of love. He is, and he's also a holy God. He's a jealous God. He's a God that wants people to flee from the wrath that is to come. But we don't seem to have enough love to even tell our best friends to flee the wrath that's to come. Or even if we're, maybe we're not extroverted and don't know how to talk so well, but even to give a reason for the hope, the real hope that lies within us. And yet we'll blink our blinker lights. We have enough love for that, but not to warn them to flee the wrath that's to come. Anyway, Jesus, instead of running out to meet these Greeks who wanted to see him, Jesus was singularly focused on a mission, and that mission was obedience to the Father. Jesus knew exactly why he was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't going there to be made king though he would be made king. He already was. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Simple. Simple. To be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die in our place, to take our chastisement, our punishment, our sins, to put them on his back so that we could be washed and so we could know the Father. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus says something very strange. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour, it's here. It's the hour. It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And wait a minute, he's just healed Lazarus. He's just had the triumphal entry. So how much better this is going to be? Holy cow, y'all, this is going to be like the Mount of Transfiguration. The Father's about ready to do something through Jesus. He's going to glow like a million billion light bulbs. There's going to be a holiness that's so thick and so deep you're going to fall on your face. That's what I thought. But the glorification of the son has nothing to do with kingship or armies or even his magnificent glory who dwells in light and accessible. No. The mission Jesus was on was to come to die, to give his life, to give his life. It's 33 to give his life. The righteous for the unrighteous to lead us to God. And so rather than running out chasing the Greeks, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and his glorification would be nothing more than his death at the hands of wicked men. Verse 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, as an agrarian people, they would understand. You've planted gardens, haven't you? And you plant a garden, you do like what? What do you plant? 
Tell me, because we're running out of time. Tell me what you plant. I don't know what you plant. Maters. Raiding maters. What else? First year of your garden, you plant 100 things. Next year, 20 things. Next year, you don't plant a garden. You go buy plants. But normally, like, if you take a tomato seed, you put it in good ground, you water it, and the sun comes, God does his part, you do your little part, what happens? Put one seed in the ground, what does it become? Time lapse it? It becomes a tomato tree. No, plant. And that tomato plant will have lots of tomatoes, and each one with a zillion seeds inside of them. So that one seed actually becomes food and a bounty, but also each of those tomatoes have seed in them. So you see that? They got the illustration. What they didn't understand is that the seed is not a seed, but a person. The seed that had to die, the seed that had to be put in the ground was not a, a literal seed. It was the Son of Man. It was Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one. That's the route to glorification, is dying to himself. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here's the closing challenge in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Like, this is Jesus speaking. This is red letter stuff. This is like, pay attention. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. What? Or am I supposed to say, God, I hate my life. I'm miserable. Is that what he's telling us to do when he says, hate your life? No, no, no. If you've got blessings from the Lord, thank him for them. Thank the Lord for your blessings. But what he's saying is, when you put your arms around, when you wrap your heart around the gods of comfort, the gods of pleasure, the gods of toys, when you wrap your heart, and I, I know because I like doing it. I'm kind of hardwired. to I like to wrap my heart around those things. He says, but when you wrap your life and your heart and your affections around those things, he goes, then you're going to lose your life. But if you will, if you will join the king in the, in the mission of the kingdom, right, if you make that your priority and wake up every morning like, God, I need your help. Fill me with your spirit so I can make the king and the kingdom the most important thing in my life. And I can be used by you to your glory. When you lose your life for his sake, you find it. And so, friends, I got to go back and ask you, how much bang is the Lord getting from his buck? God's not going to twist somebody's arm, but he does want to use you. He wants to use you to share the hope, the real hope, that the hope that's real in your life, that you would share it with those who are lost. Don't ever assume that the people you think are far from God have no ability to get there. They do. If the Iranians do, so do your friends. If the Chinese communists do, so do your friends. The question is, do we love them enough to only blink our lights or to share our heart and our life with them? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.